Hope you're ready for a swinging good time. It's the West Coast Ace versus the Southern Speed Demon in Fireball 500. Look out world, here I come. I'm a racing son of a gun. I'm the fastest under the sun. Fireball 500, where I go, you know it's wild. A 500 or a fast country mile. Rev up from Lauren, running Daytona style. Fireball 500. Love it and live it like a loving man. Living and loving fast as I can. That's why they call me a traveling man. Fireball 500. With a girl by my side. I'm a lover, I'm for a ride. Know how to keep her satisfied. Fireball 500. Welcome to another edition of Zoom Lens. My name is Eric Estep, joined as always by Josh Mole. This week we're talking about an old classic. Well, it's old. I'd never heard of this movie until it was brought to our attention and we decided to watch it. So I don't know if it can be considered a classic, but we're reacting and reviewing the 1966 film Fireball 500. Josh, uh, we're talking about the good old days of early stock car racing, running moonshine across state lines. I'm excited about this one. I'm super excited to talk to you about this one because I can't tell. I had a really great time with this movie. There's plenty to nitpick and we're going to get into all of that. But I can't quite tell how much of this movie I sincerely enjoyed or did not enjoy and how much of it is ironic uh, enjoyment. I can't quite tell what's uh funny because it's bad and what's actually enjoyable so i'm really interested to hear how a lot of this stuff bounced off of you yeah we're gonna try and keep our thoughts uh pretty organized here i do want to lead with a lot of the the racing and nascar discussion because this is a movie that um in many ways is truly a nascar movie the plot is driven by these two drivers who have their different wants, desires, and needs. They have a rivalry uh, brewing uh, between the two of them. I don't want to get into too many spoilers right away because I think, I don't want to speak for you, Josh, but I think this is a film that we we can recommend uh, a lot of hardcore, especially longtime NASCAR fans watch, especially if they want to kind of a peek into you know, 1960s NASCAR, the early years of Richard Petty, that kind of era. You know, there are a lot of really cool things to be seen in this film, so I don't want to spoil things too much too soon, but uh, we are definitely going to get into the plot. We're going to talk all things spoilers here before too, too long, but uh, let's start with the NASCAR of this movie, because to me, this was kind of my thesis statement that I put together after watching this film. This actually felt in many ways like a love letter to the rebellious origins of stock car racing. I don't know if that's the impression you got. I really thought that you know it centers around uh, kind of a, a underground, you know, illegal moonshine running ring group and a driver, a hot race car driver has to uh, kind of gets, I don't know, forced into uh, working with them and has to outrun the law. Then he works with the law. Uh, but it's really the focus of the film is on that sort of genre, that characteristic of the early days of stock car racing. So I, I don't know if you felt that way, but I feel like they you're supposed to root for the, the rebellious hero in this. Yeah, I was hard for me. The cognitive dissonance of that rebellious uh, way of describing it is, yes, it has that outlaw side of NASCAR history that I just love. 
but I, I'm trying to reconcile that rebelliousness with the fact that this is a 60s beach party movie. There's no beach or, or yeah. party in it, but it is from that. It's it's Frankie Avalon. It's Annette Funicello. They are the uh, the all-time greats, if there can be such a thing, of the beach party movie, which is the opposite of rebellious. It is the most clean cut. These are former Mouseketeers. Uh, the, this is very safe, very uh, conformist. And so it's a very weird thought to hold in my head of it is, it is a, a love letter to NASCAR's history, but in the form of Disney Channel before it was Disney Channel kind of thing. A little. I mean, I'd say it's PG-13. There's uh, innuendos. There's some fist fights. There's blood. I don't know. I, I was surprised to see, like, bloody noses, guys getting in fights. There's a great scene I love um, where, uh, you know, one driver, one of the one hero gets wrecked for the win. Our main hero of this film, Dave Owens, gets wrecked by, uh, I guess, the other kind of the, the B hero, Sonny Leander Fox. He gets wrecked for the win and ends up confronting on victory lane. They end up brawling. And there's even a line where they say, oh, like, don't let him handle it. Let him handle it. I thought that was so funny watching nascar today where you know pit crews officials whoever uh breaks up a fight instantly not in this case no this movie was it wasn't afraid to get a little wild but i see what you're saying is it still it felt like the safest attempt at creating a a, a rebel like the the next rebel without a cause it was trying to like capitalize on that audience or go after that young teenage audience and so it was it was afraid to go full bore into that it was still a very safe version of that um, but I, I thought that fight scene was great where you have guys brawling in victory lane, bloodied on the ground. It goes on for longer than you feel like this fight scene, scene should go on while all the spectators and sponsors and fans just just watch. <laughs> yeah, that scene is that that's a perfect example of what I mean when I can't tell what's what's sincere and what's irony in that I do half of my brain really likes that uh, that authenticity of two drivers one of them wrecked for the win knocking the hell out of each other there uh and it but the other half of my brain is just thinking this is 60s batman and they got the the swing music and the horn stings every time they land a punch and they're these like big exaggerated herky-jerky Hollywood movie punches and like I can't I legitimately could not tell on what level am I actually enjoying this movie I know I'm enjoying it I know I'm having a good time but what it's so very confusing it's cheesy and it is absolutely dated like it might have been even cheesy for a movie that came out in the 1960s I'm not sure but part of the the datedness of it honestly is is its charm and so I do want to kind of just give an overview if you're a NASCAR fan a hardcore racing fan and you're listening to this thinking maybe I should actually go watch the movie before I hear the rest of this podcast if you want to see the Petty 43, that good old looking blue Plymouth on screen. Now, it's not driven by Richard Petty, kind of weird. It's driven by Dave Owens. I don't know why they gave him the 43. That's strange. If you want to see that car put to film in, in all of its glory, if you want to see Riverside International Raceway, which, of course, longtime fans will recognize, that used to they used to open the season uh, out in California racing on this road course. This track opened in 1957, but it closed in the late 80s. Uh, Rusty Wallace actually won the last NASCAR race at Riverside. That was all the way in 
1988, but for years, they actually raced at Riverside before the Daytona 500. They still ran the Daytona 500 in February, but, you know, Golden Coast, they could race there in January, and it wasn't any big deal. So if you want to see some cool Riverside action, check this movie out. You want to see things like Danger? I mean... I don't know if you thought this way, Josh. This isn't really a spoiler, but the end of this movie takes place at the Daytona 500, and they just had montages of cars just crashing in spectacular fashion. Literal piles of cars on fire. Drivers tumbling out of their vehicles engulfed in flames. Like, the... the, if you, the spectacle was, I thought, pretty intense for a movie of this budget in the 1960s, but it made NASCAR, it made stock car racing look dangerous, thrilling. The crowd was into it. Uh, if you're a NASCAR fan who maybe grew up, maybe, maybe you're much older than I am, perhaps, if you grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, this is the era of NASCAR, the early days of NASCAR you reminisce about, you think about as the golden age, the, the initial rise of stock car racing in America, I think you're going to love a lot of the imagery in this film because it's... You know, there's a lot of you know drama and conversations in between the racing scenes, but there are a lot of racing scenes, a lot of action, a lot of a lot of big crashes, and it's it's pretty cool. I'd never seen anything like it with these cars. Yeah, that danger element, I think, is uh, one. I I feel like a lot of non racing fan racing culture focuses on that aspect, and it's something that it's part of the mystique of it that makes racing extra cool is that these guys are daredevils. They're going so fast. Uh, you know, they can explode, uh, they can crash, they can catch on fire. Uh, and then they're also pulling these, you know, really bold blocks and, and things like that. I, my question for you is, you know, we're, we're recording this the, the week after, uh, Atlanta, and you've got Chase Elliott's block. You've got um, a, a, everything to do with Ross Chastain, uh, and, and a lot of that conversation is on. You know, wow, these guys are driving unsafe, and why aren't they thinking about safety? And this movie, and a, even a little bit of last week's video with Stroker Ace, were kind of begging the question for me of. When exactly was that golden era when all the drivers were safe and they all respected each other and uh, nobody did anything dangerous because we're, we're starting to get all of this really good footage of these older eras of NASCAR. And it seems like that danger element is so clear and so salient to everyone but NASCAR fans. NASCAR fans, I think, are the only ones that where that danger element doesn't key uh, excitement. It, it keys anger or frustration. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I kind of agree and disagree because I don't. Well, first off, I don't think that anyone would consider the safest or most uh, you know uh, straightforward gentlemanly form of racing to be the golden era necessarily i think the golden era can mean a wide variety of things i think there's a mix of clean drivers like in the 80s and 90s mark martin always kind of the clean guy versus dale earnhardt who is not afraid to ruffle your feathers not afraid to rattle your cage i think you need that dichotomy you need a little bit of danger but not so much danger that any one fender bender could send someone's life quite literally up in smoke you needed that bit mix you needed that balance and I think in modern NASCAR, while you see some bold, over-aggressive moves, there's not really the danger element present anymore. And I think that's 
part of what emboldens these bold moves is that they drivers i mean there hasn't been a death in nascar and in, in any of their top three series in over 20 years and i think that's in the back of everyone's minds that you're kind of bulletproof in modern day race cars so con- contrasting the footage we see to today on Sundays with the footage you see in this movie drivers with open face leather helmets wearing like <laughs> like a high school science class goggles no head and neck restraints barely a seat they're basically racing on a bar stool there going 175 miles per hour in these top heavy uh, little race cars around the Daytona International Speedway the contrast is insane and you can see in these early days safety like Obviously, nobody wanted to get hurt, but that element of danger, I think, was part of the appeal back in those days. Just, I think the world was a little rougher. They were okay with things being a, a little, little more rough around the edges like that. But, th- but that is so evident in this this movie, and I, and it is very easy to see the differences between the '60s and the 2020s. You know, I often will forget that sort of outsider look at these drivers in that we see them as athletes right these are athletes of the sports we follow whereas that danger element really contributes to it kind of puts them in the same category as like a fighter jet pilot or you know a firefighter or something where uh they're it's it's dangerous and exciting what they're doing yeah, I, I, that's a good point. It is very exciting, and the racing scenes in this are great. Um, a lot of the the commentary. There's a lot of details I do want to highlight real quick before we kind of get into spoilers and start to discuss the plot. But I love some of the attention to detail in this film. They have a great figure eight racing scene where the two main characters, Dave Owens and Sonny Lander Fox, challenge each other, or Lander challenges Owens to a figure eight race where uh, it turns ends up in a draw. They both take each other out. The crowds into it, but also gasping every. Every time they near miss, uh, I thought that was a really great scene. Uh, the the little details in conversation. Uh, Dave Owens travels from California to to the South. I think to like South Carolina or North Carolina, wherever this largely takes place, somewhere in the Carolinas, because he wants to make it big on the NASCAR circuit and go race the Daytona 500. That's why he's there. I think kind of having Daytona as that big shiny goal in the distance is pretty great. Uh, the fact that they open this this movie at Riverside and then go to Daytona a couple weeks later. You know, I actually looked up the 1966 season because we see the 43 car, the obvious any NASCAR fan, Petty Enterprises. 43. We see that in like the very first couple minutes of the film. It's supposed to be Dave Owens behind the wheel, but let's pretend it's Richard Petty. That year, 1966, Richard Petty won eight races. He drove the 43 for most of that season. He made some starts on the 42. They were swapping back and forth from time to time. He actually finished 25th in that year's Riverside race. He had an engine issue, so he didn't finish. But then a few weeks later, he did win the Daytona 500 in that 43 car that we pretend in this movie is Dave Owens. There's just a ton of great details. The whole West Coast driver versus South driver, that like rivalry that's formed. We've seen that in the past. Like Jeff Gordon was from California versus Dale Earnhardt from North Carolina. Today, Kyle Larson, Kyle Busch, Harvick, they're the West Coast guys versus the Chase Elliotts and Austin Dillons and Ross Chastains who grew up in the Carolinas, the Georgias, the Floridas. You still see those rivalries alive and well today. And this movie, I, I think, in many ways, it's it's very accurate to NASCAR then and now. And so if you're a hardcore stock car racing fan who's watched, especially for a long, long time, I think you'll respect a lot of those callbacks, those references. So I, I appreciated those. I don't know if anything stood out to you, Josh, but those are some of the things that stood out to me. I Oh, yeah. The, now, I will say that 
that number 43 not being Richard Petty and how he just was confusing uh, at first. It, it's confusing and I consider it blasphemy. <laughs> and really, really, I'm more disappointed that we don't get to see really that era of Richard Petty, except during a, they use a kind of stock footage of the 43 coming in for a pit stop. And if you look close, that's Richard Petty behind the wheel, obviously, <laughs> and not Frankie Avalon. But uh, I, I consider that high blasphemy. Uh, the, he's driving it around on a trailer and he's like, oh yeah, I got a car. That is not your car. That's not your car. That is that is Richard Petty's Back car. Back in the, in the time of like the 60s <laughs> like this, did they have to get clearances and like rights from Petty Enterprises to make this happen? Or could they just say, like, I, I wonder what sort of legal process Paramount, Paramount had to go through uh, to distribute this movie. <laughs> Yeah, that, because he, he basically Richard Petty doesn't exist uh, in this nope. movie. It's it's. I don't think they reference any. Petty, but they make a reference to Parnelli Jones, uh, who wasn't. I don't even know if he ever raced NASCAR, but he was a, obviously a great race car driver in his own right. But I don't think they ever reference any other notable NASCAR names. Yeah, like it, even it, verbally, like I don't think they ever mention them. Well, and it's like so we talk about the, this era of NASCAR, and it really is. Uh, one of the legendary eras and I was thinking about the names you know Petty and Parsons were this is their era a little bit of Curtis Turner Mm -hmm. um, Wendell Scott is racing at this point yeah is it is it legendary because they were good or is it legendary because we don't have this stuff on film you know every again even stroker ace as soon when we get this footage we're it's like a, a manna from heaven of like wow look at it it's so great we don't have these like perfect race replay recording you know nascar uploads the whole race to youtube a few days after it, it, it happens we have instant replays and multiple camera angles whereas all of this you you've got uh, you know, somebody writing down the score and, yeah. uh, you know, there's no there's no real footage outside of things like this. And so I, I it was awesome to see this legendary era. And I, I, I was thinking about how much of it is just legendary because we never get to see it. We don't have the vivid footage of it like we have now. Yeah, I think that's part of it. It feels like a myth because there isn't a clear picture painted in the modern day. It is all pen to paper written down. You just have we have scorecards from the 50s and 60s that we can go back to and refer to. Um, So, yeah, I agree. That is part of the charm of this movie, especially as you see that era elements of that era. It, on film, it, very clear, very solid quality for the time. So I think there is uh, that was very appealing. I really enjoyed seeing that. Um, we'll talk more about the racing. We'll talk. We'll make some more NASCAR connections as well. But I do want to get into the plot now that we've kind of laid down the law of the land here. It, if you're a racing fan, if you've been watching NASCAR for a long time, if you're a history buff, I think you'll find plenty to enjoy in this movie just watching the racing scenes and smiling at the references when they talk about getting to Daytona one day. I think that's that alone is enough reason to at least check out parts of this movie. But um, real quick, I'll, I'll kind of go over the plot. It's not super complicated, but this is where we will start to trickle into some spoilers. Uh, so the movie centers around, it really centers around Dave Owens. This is uh, Frankie Avalon's character. He's a hot race car driver winning all sorts of races out west in California. We see him win at Riverside in the opening scene. He comes to 
to the south. I don't think it's ever specified exact, exactly where. I think it's somewhere in the Carolinas. But his goal is to make it to Daytona. He meets up with uh, um, Charlie Big, who runs like, a, is he a mechanic? Is he run an auto shop? I can't remember now off the top of my head. But he's got a car that uh, that um, Dave Owens can race at Daytona, can race and races around town to qualify for Daytona, to earn his earn respect in the local uh, racing on the local racing circuit he challenges the local hero Sonny Leander Fox who's according to him never lost a race yet the first time he races Dave Owens in a sanctioned event he gets beat by like half a lap if I remember correctly like they didn't even try to make it dramatic it was a blowout so uh, the two of them immediately form uh, a rivalry if you will there's uh, you know they both have there's there's female characters in this there's uh jane harris played by annette funicello and there's martha brian played by julie Parrish. um martha is this wealthy she's a, a widow has a ton of money and she ends up recruiting dave owens to uh help her moonshine business help deliver moonshine she wants him to be one of the guys driving the cars real fast to avoid the cops and uh kind of ropes him in gets him wrapped up in this whole scheme the FBI or the IRS is that what, were they IRS agents? Is that what they were referred to? Yeah, as? They, they alternately refer to them as the revenuers and the feds. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure where they, what agency specifically. They're just generically G-men. Yeah, they just have suits and sunglasses. I don't think they're armed or anything like that. But they they end up catching uh, Dave. They confront him and basically use him to try and bust the entire moonshine operation. Uh, I'm losing track. Along the way, he's winning races. He and Sonny uh, Leander are continuing to go back and forth. There's a murder at one point. One of the other guys who's helping run moonshine gets run off the road and dies. And Dave Owens suspects Sonny Lander Fox. He's like, oh, he's jealous that I've come over here. He, I'm, I'm winning. He's out to get me. He's trying to kill me. And he gets run off the road himself. And he's convinced it's Sonny Lander. There's a whole plot twist where, no, it's actually Charlie Big who's hatched this whole scheme to, because he's jealous of um, that uh, Dave Owens has come over and has gotten so close to Martha. He professes his love to Martha in front of everybody. He confesses in front of everybody, including the FBI agents, that it was him all along who was running people off the road trying to get uh, and and stealing the moonshine from them. Uh, that's the plot twist. I, I didn't do a very good job explaining it, but that's effectively where things end. Well, things then the two drivers go race at Daytona. They make up. They race at Daytona. Uh, Dave Owens wins, and uh, Sonny Lander gets caught up in a horrible crash. I mentioned earlier, somebody uh, rolls out of their car on fire. Uh, that was him. He gets literally vaulted over the outside retaining wall, uh, tumbles to a stop, catches on fire, and ends up hospitalized. But he's okay. Both guys get the girls, and it's uh, all happy, hunky-dory, good good times and good vibes. That's when it really feels like, like you said earlier, that beach movie, that 60s beach movie vibe um, by the end. But that's the plot in a nutshell. Josh, where do you want to start? Where do you want to focus firstly? So the plot, um, I think we have to uh, talk about the moonshine uh, portion of it because this is really what sank in with me as far as uh, loving this movie and loving the portrayal of the racing in it. Um, this, this, I am obsessed with this outlaw history of NASCAR. I think it is super slept on as as part of the the NASCAR brand as a whole. I think uh, you know outlaws are always cool. The mafia is cool. 
uh, Scarface is cool. Gangbangers are cool. Uh, I, I think that, that we're missing out on this this lost history of moonshiners and all. And there are major drivers that uh, this really did happen. They really did uh, run shine to make money. Um, a, a lot of them, that was the only way they could make money. Um, I, I think uh, it, it is very slept on. And this movie, you know, you talk about uh, they've got the figure eight and, and we see this rivalry. You see them go through the course of NASCAR racing. Um, they're on dirt. Uh, they're on the streets. They're on the oval. Um, all of these things uh, that are part of the NASCAR schedule today, dirt tracks, road courses, ovals, they all trace their roots back to this moonshining uh, background, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, dirt tracks kind of simulate the tight country roads. The road courses simulate, obviously, street racing and, and sort of that last half mile uh, to, the, to the speakeasy. Um, and you've got the oval, which is all about endurance and keeping your car up to speed over 500 miles, which might as well be the distance from Charlotte to Atlanta round trip kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, this that part of the plot, uh, I really appreciated that because it, it's never um, it's it's never not cool the way they portray it. It's always this like seedy criminal. Uh, it, it adds to that overall danger, along with the on-track danger of crashing. There is the off-track danger. This this uh, era of NASCAR, I want to see more on film. And this this brings me to my big question I, I have for you, actually. When we talk about this moonshine plot uh, and the moonshine era, um, number one, why don't we see more of this represented in NASCAR and talked about um, and mythologized as much as um, some of the other stuff. And what would you do if you remade this movie for a modern audience? Because it is it's very cheesy. It is very much of its time. Why don't we see this anymore? And uh, what would you do if we did see this? So the second part of that question is a bigger question. That's a tougher one to answer. But I, I do think for the to the first point, I've always wondered that why NASCAR is often hesitant to embrace or promote that story, the origin story. They do like to say that they don't, it would be, would be false, but they, they certainly don't make it a big, big deal. Even though, like you said, outlaws, you know, stuff like that is always inherently cool, especially to a younger audience, something that NASCAR has desperately been trying to chase for the last few years. Um, really my entire lifetime, I, I can only say my only, guess is that it's they're worried it's not corporate friendly and that's one thing you watch this movie um as a movie but then you also just look at the characters in the movie and you take them in the context in the context of the world they're supposed to exist in they don't seem corporate like very very uh business friendly they're not big corporate um spokesmen for sure and i wonder if nascar as it got bigger and bigger and you had larger and larger brands stepping on the sort of fear of being not family friendly enough um i wonder if that took hold and now they're afraid to promote anything that seems i don't know could be that could be uh, argued as morally um questionable in any way shape or form because you know ultimately 
this is we're talking about illegal activity stuff that at the time you would be thrown in jail for and so you know there's a moral component to it that some may agree with some may not so i wonder i've always assumed that it's once nascar got so big and so widespread and so corporate they felt the need to bail on some of this story or at least not openly endorse this story uh, a bit but as for like why do we not see more of this era in movies where movies are just entertainment they're supposed to be kind of you know they're supposed to be conflict they're not everything's not supposed to be perfect and and amazing and wonderful I, i don't know ford versus ferrari completely different movie came out just a few years ago very well received i don't know that it was a huge box office success but it wasn't a huge flop or anything like that it was solid did well um, and that movie actually takes place in the 60s. In fact, the whole movie surrounds uh, the 1966 Le Mans. So it's the exact same year this movie is supposed to take place. And so that tells me that modern movies based on you know this era of racing can be successful. But, of course, Le Mans, that's an international, that's Europe, that's a, a much broader, wider scale. A movie like this one that is so hyper-focused on one sort of insular region of the United States, I can only imagine that's why we haven't seen more of this type of content. Like, I feel like modern audiences aren't going to look back quite as fondly on like the 1960s American South as maybe they did when this movie was made. So that's why I guess I'd, I'm not shocked that a major Hollywood producer hasn't um, taken something like this on in any in any recent year, but. I'd like to see them do it. I'd like to see it really given its true credit because the stories, anytime you read a story out of this era, you hear someone who was around the time this was happening. Some of the stories are remarkable. The the movies, the scripts write themselves. So I can't say exactly what I would do if I was remaking a movie like this, but I would lean heavily on um, actual true stories that have happened. And I would try to center something around uh, one of those because, again, I just think they'd write themselves. Yeah, and that's a really good point about the era of the 1960s South maybe not being the most hospitable to a, a major Hollywood uh, film. Yeah, I, I guess there, there's really only, uh, I, I guess you could do it in a sort of um, Forrest Gump sound of music kind of way where you, you have the characters see the bad stuff. Uh, and visibly not like what they're seeing, but they, they, you know, you just kind of walk away from there. You don't engage (laughs) with it. You just kind of give your disapproval. Um, The other idea would be to take this same sort of plot from Fireball 500, where you got, you know, he gets involved in moonshine in order to get a, you know, prove himself as a racer and and get a car and all of that. Uh, You do it by making a movie about Wendell Scott, right? See, and that, therefore I think that's got, yeah. You got all of this, you got the 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 moonshine. Um dude was in World War II, right? You got that that uh that southern story, guy comes back from the war, soups up his car, has to run shine to to make ends meet kind of thing. But he's also able to directly engage with those parts of the 1960s that we wouldn't necessarily you you couldn't leave uncommented uh upon um and he's he's the the quintessential uh legendary racer from that era as far as the backgrounds 
he's a Hall of Famer, right? Um, and he absolutely uh, runs into those issues. So I thought about that, actually, because I, I had the same thought. If Hollywood ever were to make a movie based on NASCAR in the 60s, it would be called Wendell Scott. It would be all about him. It would be either directly about him or about a character who is you know, is supposed to be Wendell Scott. And that would be a tremendous story, don't get me wrong, but I do feel like pretty quickly – Understanding the trends of media in Hollywood today, I think pretty quickly that would get away from being a movie about racing and it would pretty quickly become just a movie about him and the hardship of being a black man in the South during the 1960s, during the the civil rights movement. And I think racing fans would then be, I don't know, would they be misled? They'd be going into it thinking it's going to be a cool racing movie about an inspiring uh, uphill story and then they might end up, I don't know, getting preached to more than they probably bargained for. I just, I know how uh, the average race fan probably thinks and i and i know going into that movie that would be my um that would be my expectation and i don't know if i want to see just a cool racing movie i don't know if that's i I don't know that i trust hollywood to focus on that or to make that seem cool i worry that the focus would be elsewhere or it would even be a critique on you know racing culture in the you know, from decades ago. So that that's my only fear with focusing on his story, even though his story absolutely deserves to be told. And I think a great movie about that would be just and would be really, really cool. And I'd go see it. I just wouldn't expect it to be a racing movie. I'd expect it to be more of a, a personal um, like biopic, almost closer to like the, the new Elvis movie or any of these things we see about musical artists. I think you're uh, 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 unfortunately right. I, I would I would maybe put it in the you know Hollywood is maybe too vague. I think if we started putting some names to it, you know, I, I think some of that could be softened. Uh, you know, maybe somebody somebody like F. Gary Gray, right? Um, did uh, Friday? Obviously, that's his his, uh, mm-hmm. his big one. But uh, you know, Italian Job. He's done Fast and the Furious movies. He did Straight Outta Compton. So he's got the historical side. Um, and I think is I, I think somebody like that, somebody of that caliber. Um, if you found an, an individual it. who had the status um, to basically go into a film and not have it meddled with in any way, shape, or form, just the studio is going to here's a blank check, you do your thing, we're going to trust the outcome. Then yeah, you might get away with it. You might it might work out. I think I think you you might end up with something that appeals to both sides um, of the theater there, both all audiences, but. I just worry if it's just a major studio production and you got, you know, 30 or 40 talking heads um, trying to come up with a script, come up with a direction. I, I, I'd i worry about that. And again, I'm not worried about it being a bad movie. I think it'd be a great movie, still a movie worth making. But if we're talking about it being, you know, a movie worth making with a cool story and a great racing scene that I think NASCAR today would be proud to showcase, that I'm more skeptical of still. <laughs> yeah, I you know, and it's sad too because it's that skepticism that would stop it. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, somehow a movie like this fireball 500, or again, I, I kind of put fireball 500 and stroker ace in the same bucket of these sort of lost eras, uh, of NASCAR. These are the movies that end up because we're, we're too afraid to make movies like that today because you have to, you do have 40 different executives that need to be satisfied and uh, the shareholders and whatnot, long before you even get to the the sentiment of the audience, we're just left with these 
you know, cheesy throwbacks. Uh, and this movie, Fireball 500, as well, we talk about the authenticity of it. This movie is super cheesy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would uh, kill for an F. Gary Gray or, or something like that during this uh, movie. Um, this era of Hollywood, this is, this is before uh, Francis Ford Coppola, before George Lucas, before Steven Spielberg, uh, I had to look at Martin Scorsese was still in film school when uh, <laughs> Fireball 500 came out. Um, yeah, they're basic like film rules that are were good. Yeah, this is their basic film rules that I noticed were broken. They break the 180 rule a couple different times, which is like rule number one: don't mess that up. Um, you know, the, the we haven't talked about this yet, but the random musical numbers that just kind of oh. put the entire movie on pause so we can showcase. I don't know, a little song and dance with, yeah, whatever. Um, and, you know, there's some plot elements as well. But, no, yeah, exactly. This movie was made before a great, great Hollywood films had been made. I should say this movie was made before an era, before the era of blockbusters and before we knew how to make like, – before movies started to look like modern movies. That's what I'm trying to say. Once you got into the 70s, some of the movies of the 70s really start – to hold, they hold up today. Like they feel, they flow, and the pacing, the the story, plot, plot points. It's all very similar to movies today, but this was still before that era. Yeah, it, you know, uh, you you went to film school. I'm sure you've heard that. But like people talk about that, one of the best movies ever made is Citizen Kane. Yeah. And yet, when you go to watch Citizen Kane, it's like it's really boring. Yeah. Um, and not particularly compelling. Uh, any particular part of it. Uh, and the reason is it's it's considered so great. It's considered so important because of everything that came before it uh, looks nothing like everything that came after it. And I think this movie is is, is a helpful example uh, of that. When people talk about what did guys like uh, Scorsese and Coppola and George Lucas, what did they do for movies? It's hard to describe because all we're left with is these words like, oh, they made blockbusters. They made the modern look of movies and the, you know, uh, all of that. Go back and watch something like Fire Fireball 500 and see what movies were like and how uh, just flat they are, how, like you said, there's, um, very few rules of filmmaking that are applied other than it's it's well lit. There are scenes that are not even in focus, which I get, I give it, you know, it's it's in the 60s. It's all, you know, blurry drive-in movie uh, screens anyways. Nobody was seeing it in the resolution we saw it in, but uh, it, it's, it's ugly, it's uh, garish, um, it's tacky, um, it's paced very weird. Um, compared to if you are used to seeing modern movies, which are all post New Hollywood, post Bonnie and Clyde, uh, all of that, you, you wouldn't need, it's hard to, to understand what makes those movies so important until you watch something like this. Yeah, exactly. It's difficult to just put your finger on it and say, oh, specifically, this is what's different. But then when you just watch a movie like Fireball 500, you, you, you like cringe in ways that you haven't cringed. You don't cringe in modern movies very often. And it may still be put hard to put your finger exactly on why you're cringing. You just, it's a feeling <laughs> you can physically feel yourself um, watching this movie differently than you'd watch uh, a lot of modern uh, movies. I, I would say overall, the word I would use for, uh, like for the filmmaking style is it's just uninspired because 
it didn't really have a style. It didn't have anything that it was really trying to base itself on besides those teen beach movies. But even then, it was sort of trying to get away from that and be a little more rebellious. So it was, it, it was kind of doing its own thing. And I don't know. It, it did things right. It did basic things right, like establish rivalries and conflicts between main characters. There was an attempt at a plot twist a plot twist but even that one's filled with major plot conveniences like you know charlie big the the bad guy just confessing to everyone his whole evil plan and master uh operation despite really not facing any pressure from anyone so it, it's just uninspired it felt like you said flat that's a good one syllable word that i would use to describe the bulk of this movie besides the racing scenes the racing scenes not to keep bouncing around I thought they were over the top at times. Like, I loved them, but the number of crashes and spins and guys just catching on fire, it felt like Mad Max Fury Road a few t- few times there, <laughs> especially towards the end, the big epic final race at Daytona. I, it was insane. I don't know if you felt the same. I, I got overwhelmed at one point. The movie went from being just people talking, hello, people talking, yes, yes, hello, dearie, yes, uh-huh, to, and they're wrecking, and that guy's on fire, and there's three cars, he's okay, oh, but he's not out of his car, oh, and there's a T-bone on the front, and it was like, what? I, that is, if you see, if you guys, if listeners, if you saw the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The final, like, ten minutes of this movie, off the rails. There's just so much going on. It's like a Marvel movie with a big disposable CGI army getting blasted by heroes. This, In this case, it was a disposable army of not CGI, but real 1960s race cars all just going up in flames one after another. Yeah, that that part of it with all the crashes and the fact that you're you're seeing every kind of crash that could happen all of that i really got this this subtle feeling like uh you know in the 90s there was a rash of movies about computers and hacking because it was all new but hollywood had no idea what it was and like it was alternately uh virtual reality where you're like flying through circuits um you had movies like uh the the sandra bullock movie the net where you know she she's a hacker and she like the, the big thing in, in one of the scenes she can order a pizza over the the internet uh and it was just this nonsense way of hollywood grappling with this new thing uh and, and i kind of got that vibe from this movie about stock car racing because this would have been about the time nascar at this point i guess is probably like what 20 years old um by the time this movie comes out but it hadn't hit the zeitgeist yet um and this movie kind of feels like that like this is uh hollywood's one of their early attempts to portray nascar and introduce nascar uh and so there there are some uh, kind of fun accuracies, uh, like with, you know, Riverside has a, a big role in the movie. Um, and, and at one point they even drop lines of like, oh, we race modifieds and, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, okay, I'm with you movie. And then there are those scenes where it's just everybody's crashing all the time. And like, no, I, I don't think they would ever finish a race. It would just be 10 hours of yellow flags if that was really how it was. Uh, but yeah, I got that. This was, uh, an outsider's view of what NASCAR is all about. Even back then, uh, it had the stereotype of people only watch it because they crash. (laughs) Yeah. And kind of on that note, like as far as the filmmakers kind of just touching all the bases, everything they were loosely familiar with 
about NASCAR, about stock car racing, even the name of the movie, Fireball 500. And I know that's like the name of um, Dave Owens' car. He has like a Fireball 500 like logo. Now, why is the car called 500? Yeah, we never <laughs> really not figured... what the numbers are referring to in yeah, racing. We never really figured that out because he doesn't race that car. That's like his daily driver. So I, we never quite fit, put two and two together right there. But um, the name Fireball 500 – Interestingly enough, uh, tragically enough, I suppose, two years before this movie came out, so probably by the time this was being funded or they were maybe starting to put a script together, um, the driver, Fireball Roberts, uh, crashed and caught fire at Charlotte in the World 600 that year in 1964. He died in the hospital a few weeks later. Obviously, he was uh, one of the top drivers in the sport until that uh, tragic accident. So you almost wonder, was like they're kind of like a nod to fireball roberts with the name I, uh, unclear i don't know that that, that I, yeah that was it was it a reference to like here's something america might have heard about already if they knew yeah. anything about if, racing if google existed back that then story. if google existed back then it was like you know seo they're like people have been typing in fireball a lot the last couple of years let's make our movie called fireball i well you know and that made me think of something else um i was listening to uh, a lifetime in NASCAR, uh, also on the Out of the Group podcast network. I was listening to an episode um, earlier this week, and they were talking about Fireball Roberts, and they were talking about him as a guy and uh, how nice he was. And they talked about, you know, JD McDuffie and, and some others who've passed away um, racing. Um, but they all, everybody in person, is super nice um you know the, uh, ben talked about richard petty and the whole petty family being um very kind-hearted um very open very welcoming not uh stuck up or you know new money rich kind of thing not at all they're all super nice how come every race car driver in movies is like a huge dick and is always <laughs> like i i just like the i, I just like to win uh I, I i go i'm like lightning baby uh and then they're like super hard ass with each other and everything but like you know we we've worked with drivers none of them are like that none of them uh talk as much smack as the movie drivers particularly in this movie talk to each other in just sentence by sentence they're why are they why are race car drivers dicks in movies <laughs> That's a good question. I just wonder if movies just like to dumb race car drivers. I, I almost wonder if it's a they try to oversimplify racing as just who's the fastest, who gets the line first. You know, it's the typical. They just turn left for three hours and whoever gets the finish line first wins. You know, it's it's maybe so they oversimplify the drivers themselves because every driver, it's like a caricature. Every driver wants to win. So like any good caricature artist would take, you know, one maybe unique feature on someone's face and would exaggerate it when they're sketching. I think movie writers and producers just take that characteristic drivers want to win they love going fast and they make that their whole personality they just drag that out because you know back in the especially back in this day really every character in these types of movies is is a pretty one-dimensional caricature um that's my guess um but i i do want to move on a little bit here before we get to like our final verdict and start to wrap things up we haven't really talked about the performances much and i do want to talk about maybe some of the performances maybe some of the specific characters there's not a ton to talk about here because you know, they're all fine. I mean, uh, Frankie Avalon's Dave Owens is good, but uh, Fabian, is that how you say his name? Fabian, how, as Sonny Leander Fox, he's good, but it's all kind of that stiff, awkward, like 1960s acting. So I don't know. Did, did anybody, anybody truly stand out to you in this movie? 
no, I, it was interesting to finally see a Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello uh, movie. I think the only other time in my life that I can remember is when I was a really little kid. I think they were on an episode of Full House or Saved by the Bell or something like that as a cameo. Um, but so I, I was aware of their existence, but they were they were old by then. This is nineties. Uh, we're talking here, um, and so I, I had no familiar. I, I knew of the beach party genre. I knew those two names. I always get them confused with the Osmonds. Uh, but I do the one of those like old timey uh, duos from movies, and uh, so it was interesting to finally see one. Um, and just how bland <laughs> they are that acting. You're, you're absolutely right. Very stiff, uh, very just uh, deliver the lines uh, as they're getting. I will say the dialogue is um, strangely compelling to me. I thought it was very snappy. Some um, of it is, yeah. Everything was, uh, you know, puns. Um, I love the line where he says, there's no, you know, they're, uh, he, Leander and Dave are, they're investigating these, this murder uh, of the, their fellow moonshiner. So they're riding together one night. And partially that's to prove, uh, you know, Leander can prove to Dave that he's not the killer because he's right there with Dave. Um, but they're driving and uh, Leander says, there's no chickens in this coop. And that's a double entendre of chicken coops and coops like cars. And every line of dialogue is like that. And it's got just that little spark that makes you think about it. Yeah, there is just a, a little bit of that. I do like that uh, and was impressed by that. That's one thing that I shockingly, I, I know I was very hard on Stroke Race at times last week in our last episode, but Stroke Race for a comedy that came out like 16, 17 years after this movie did not have nearly the same clever dialogue moments that this one had. So, uh, no, this one was definitely, I think, a little surprising for a movie that came out in its time. Um, definitely moments where actors would go way over the top. You mentioned the kind of cartoonish fight scenes that would take place here and there. There was uh, obviously the fight in Victory Lane between Sonny Leander and uh, Dave Owens. Then later there's a fight between Owens and Charlie Big, where Charlie Big gets beat up. And, you know, again, it's they, the fight goes on for a long, long time. Uh, what did you make of the two main uh, women in this movie? We've talked about Annette F uh, Funicello as Jane, and then there's Julie Parrish, as Martha, who sort of plays, again, she's the wealthier woman who, uh, I guess, has a thing for Dave. At first, you can't tell if she's just trying to use him. By the end, it seems genuine, but she's the she's kind of like the seductress. He's trying to avoid her temptations. I thought they both, they both played very stereotypical female roles in this movie. I, I, what did you make of them? Did anything jump out at you? Yeah, I, first of all, I thought, you know, you bring up the, the relationship between her and uh, Dave Owens, Frankie Avalon. And I had to, the, the this kind of threw me a little bit at, at first. I had to look this up. This is apparently the first movie that those two, they're like a famous pairing in these beach party movies. This is the first one where they don't end up together. Um, huh. And so I think a lot of that will they or won't they and he's uh jealous of the new guy and they have to kind of prove that leander is worthy of annette um is uh i think that's all for that that current year audience of 
people that showed up expecting those two uh, to be together and and not being confused about why they aren't together on screen. Um, but poor, poor Annette Funicello, I felt so bad for her um, because she, at the time, she was, she was a star. Uh, her name made money in a movie, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But it, you've got this super throwback uh, 1960s uh, social dynamic going on. She has, there's a bit of dialogue that I, I want to highlight between her and Leander. Um, oh, yeah. She asked Leander, is Dave in trouble? And he says, yeah. And she says, this may sound like a foolish feminine question, but why don't you help him? And I just died a little inside. <laughs> foolish feminine question. Why don't you help your friend? And again, <laughs> it's funny because uh, one of the, you know, the feminism had just completely not been invented yet, apparently. Uh, but also the fact that, him helping his friend is a foolish feminine concern. Like, <laughs> it's no, like pause, no homo. I'm not going to help my friend. Uh, yeah, it's so almost it, like what? They're almost inadvertently dunking on the men in this movie, saying that men are just they don't they're selfish, all selfish. Yeah. They don't care about anyone else. So it's almost an un- unintentional own with that line. <laughs> yeah, and she does. She has this like puppy dog look as as all the men in her life are just telling her what to do and she even says uh, to effect at one point that uh you know a, a good woman follows her man and does does what she's supposed to do and all of that like this very obedient um portrayal of, of yeah. womanhood but then all the different men in her life her uncle uh dave owens leander they all tell her what to do and she's got this like confused puppy dog tilted head look of like oh gosh i don't know i'm getting conflicting information from all the men i'm supposed to listen to uh yeah. it, it's such a, a throwback but but it is still somehow 20 years before Stroke Race, it is still less problematic. I was not offended at it. It's more just adorable. Look how old timey those poor people, they had to live uh, like that. The all a woman could hope for is to have a family and a house and that's it. Those are your two things that you're allowed to have. Uh, like it's more sad. It wasn't offensive uh, and shocking the way that Stroker Ace was. Yeah, and it's I think it's also balanced because especially the character of Martha, she has like actual power and influence yeah. over the story and other characters um, in the plot, which Stroker Ace, I mean, the one, I forget her name already, but the main woman in that story doesn't seem to have a lot of agency of her own so that I feel like only amplified that further but yeah uh, no this movie's one you can kind of chalk a lot of that stuff up to oh, it was made in the 60s you know it's just a different time understand it acknowledge it and move on from it um, what did you I, I, before we get to the verdict when this movie started and the first thing I saw on my screen was a claymation of cavemen <laughs> with Vin Scully the voice of the Dodgers narrating it I had no idea what we had gotten ourselves into. I was shot. It only lasts for like 30 seconds. But uh, like, did anyone else listening? Josh, did you like, were you at all like, claymation, claymation? Whoa, what's happening? (laughs) What's going on? I, yeah, I, it is when you turn it on expecting a NASCAR movie and you get a claymation caveman, it is, it'll throw you super hard for a second there. Uh, I I thought it was uh, very funny as a, as a lover of history, 
myself i i love their their abbreviated history of motorsports in that <laughs> it hit the the three classic eras of history cavemen rome and today <laughs> and that's it that's that's the that's all you need to know uh about history is those three things happened cavemen invented the wheel romans had chariots thus nascar uh <laughs> perfect perfect no notes you know, at the uh, time, like now we all look back at as NASCAR, its origins were, you know, based in moonshine and people outfitting their cars to run away from the cops. But in the 60s, you know, NASCAR was still pretty new. Do you think they kind of had a grasp yet of, of like, like, what is our origin story? Like, where did we come from? This just sort of is happening. Like, do you think they were even aware at that point of the moonshiner roots? That's really interesting. I, I don't know when when did the the our current conception of NASCAR as this sort of uh, I, I think you know whether you're talking about the drivers or the sport itself, it has this you know outlaw to superstar sort of trajectory. We understand it as that of you know it came from these. Uh, poor Southern guys after the war, souping up their cars, uh, you know, all the way to Jeff Gordon possibly getting his own Space Jam movie to, uh, you know, all of the global heights that it's hit, racing in Japan, racing in Mexico, uh, all of that. We, when did that start? You know, did, uh, you know, did, did, I don't know, Kale Yarbrough, did, did he understand that when he started NASCAR? Did he know, did he have the same view of not getting into NASCAR the way that, say, a Christopher Bell might have conceived getting into NASCAR? Uh, when did that sort of idea of NASCAR start? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Maybe some of the listeners at home can uh, posit a a few ideas on that one, offer some suggestions. I forgot about that Jeff Gordon Space Jam uh, (laughs) spinoff that was concerned. I wish that had been made and we we could be reviewing that on this show. Uh, But I had fun with this movie. Uh, Josh, final thoughts on Fireball 500. Did you like it? Would you watch it again? Do you recommend it to race fans out there? I I really would recommend it to race fans. Um, again, I would I would make sure your irony uh, muscle is is finely tuned and worked out uh, and ready for um, the the nineteen sixties Batman uh, era of filmmaking. You 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 need to be ready for them to suddenly stop the movie and go up on stage and sing a song. That's gonna happen. Uh, in this movie, but it is so worth it to uh, one to see that old time. You just like we talked about with at any price, how they made Iowa look, you know, huge and important and amazing. They do that with Riverside in, in this. Um, you know, you'll see that old era. You'll see that Richard Petty forty three um, is very cool. You'll see the moonshiner. Uh, you know the the come up um in that world i thought that was that was really cool i'm super into the the gta side of of nascar go here pick (laughs) up the car deliver it there watch out for the bad guys like love it loved all of that super worth seeing i don't know that i would uh watch it again anytime soon uh unless it was to you know show a friend in a good bad movie way uh, or enjoy it with friends who are NASCAR fans. 
Um, but I absolutely, you need to see it at least once. You'll, you'll appreciate the history and you'll appreciate uh, the, the authenticity of NASCAR, such as it is. I don't want to overplay. It's not a documentary um, <laughs> by any stretch. It is, it is a beach party movie about NASCAR, but uh, I am such a sucker for the outlaws, the moonshiners, the, the car chase on the dirt roads. I cannot get enough of that. This movie hits it. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. If you're a racing fan, I recommend checking this out at least once. But I am in the same boat as you there, Josh. I don't see myself sitting down and certainly not watching this entire movie ever again. But it is nice to know that you know footage, like pretty good quality footage of racing in the 60s exists out there um, and is edited in such a, a, a tight package. Uh, it's nice to know that that exists. And that's the kind of stuff that I would absolutely go back uh, and refer back to seeing Riverside and all of its glory back in the sixties, seeing Daytona, like that's a track that still is very much active today. And just, they have like, they cut to like a blimp shot looking down at Daytona international speedway. And it looks so different. There's not a huge mall built up outside the front stretch. Obviously the front stretch grandstands look very different. The track doesn't have a catch fence, but it still's got that typical, what, is it like 30 degrees? I don't know what the banking is at Daytona. It's still got that huge banking, high speeds, the danger. Daytona in the 60s looks insane. And so getting to see this stuff, uh, see it on film, edited together cinematically, telling a story, um, that one that was really a treat. So uh, I, I'm also a fan of the, the backstory of NASCAR, the, the outlaws and the rebels and the, you know, skirting the law. I think that stuff is super duper interesting. And this movie, while it, it takes some liberty, sure, and it exaggerates from time to time, it's not, like you said, it's no documentary. It still feels like a love letter to me. It's not trying to tell you that these are bad people or this was a bad situation. It's not trying to judge their actions. Like it's they're the, they're Robin Hood in this story. Like everyone maybe views what their actions a little bit differently, but the movie really does not strike a negative tone. I think it treats the origins of stock car racing with pretty good respect and to me it almost felt like a love letter to uh to NASCAR's beginning. So, um if you're a stock car racing fan, if you're a history buff, I suggest, I think we both suggest you check out Fireball 500 at least once. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode of Zoom Lens. Josh, thanks for being here. I, I thought this was a great time. Yeah, I loved this movie. Uh, I watched it twice like I, I do with all of these and uh, loved it. Good stuff. Absolutely. Next week, we'll be watching Red Dirt Rising. It's a newer film. We'll see what it's like. I think it's another one, very uh, NASCAR origin-y focused. So it'll be interesting to compare that one to uh, a movie made in 1966 based in a roughly roughly similar era, I believe. I don't actually know. I haven't seen the movie yet. I've only seen the trailer. (laughs) I just saw old cars and I I heard the word moonshine. So get ready for more... uh, more of that next week. I'm looking forward to it. If you're uh, planning to watch along with us before next week's episode, uh, I believe you can watch it for free. If you have Amazon Prime, uh, Crackle, Tubi, Pluto, uh, I believe it's available on there. It's included in those services. So um, uh, it might also be on YouTube. I, I know a Fireball 500, you could find pretty much the whole movie on YouTube. This one might also have an upload somewhere. We didn't put it there. Someone else did. So uh encourage you to watch along so you can join in uh, the conversation a bit better next week when we talk about Red Dirt Rising. Uh, But in the meantime, on behalf of uh, Josh Mull, my name is Eric Estep. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Zoom Lens. I'm the winner of the race. I'm a man of
king who plays the ace Everybody calls me their friend It's just my way of walking My way of talking My way that gets me my way I'm a lover of the girls Proud to say that I am They're the greatest in the world They know I'm their loving man It's just my way of walking My way of talking My way that gets me my way 